Professor Nibley is recognized as one of the foremost scholars in the LDS Church. He graduated summa cum laude from the University of California at Los Angeles and completed his Ph.D. as a university fellow at the University of California, Berkeley. He has taught at Brigham Young University for many years. Trained in history and having spent a lifetime as a scholar of history, language, and religion, he brings a broad perspective to the study of the scriptures. We bring you now Professor Nibley. Well, today we've reached the most famous of all passages in Matthew, Matthew 16, 18, among other things. Now it tells us that they went up to Caesarea Philippi, which is a, which is a place called Manu today. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon, in the extreme north, as far as you can go north and east in Israel. Uh, they were right at the foot of Mount Hermon there. It was a wild place. Well, Caesarea Philippi was a village there. When I was there in 1964, show how wild it was, there was a herd of gazelle there. And the, the person we were with, the driver, said he'd never seen gazelle in his life before, and there were gazelles. But uh, we went out with the royal hunter, the official hunter for the king of, uh, of Jordan. Surround, we were, I was with one, one other person. And uh, he says they frequently, they frequently have uh, Wolves are the rarest, but they frequently have hyenas and leopards and bears and, uh, and even ostriches have come back in that region. They haven't seen ostriches for hundreds of years, but even ostriches coming out. It's wild country. In other words, he's taking the apostles apart as far as he can get. <coughs> and it says there he, uh, there he asks them the questions. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Today, there's, there's a general consensus. I've been going for a particular purpose. I've been, been putting myself up to date in the latest theological literature. You can do it quite fast if you read through periodicals, periodicals over the last three years. And there's a universal consensus that Son of Man is simply Jesus' way of saying that he was an ordinary guy and nothing else, just Son of Man. But you'll notice that every time that passage occurs, and it occurs many times in Matthew, occurs 27 times, it always occurs to him in his real nature. It's a code name, a perfect cover for that, because it always refers to him in his celestial capacity. The Son of Man is the one who's coming in his glory. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, he's just a person that's that. No, Son of Man is something else. So you'll see he often refers to himself as the Son of Man here. So he asked them, who do people say the Son of Man is? And you know, some say, well, some say he's Elijah, some Red Vivas. Some say he's Jeremiah the prophet. Some say he's John the Baptist. Some say he's one of the prophets. And then he asked them, who do you say I am? Incidentally, the King James Version uses both forms. See, who is a double relative, so it's who or who. Who do you say I am, or whom do you say I am? They're both correct, but we won't argue about that and continue on our way. The, uh, <coughs> but who do you say I am? You notice everything here, and especially the next chapter, but here, everything is a greater and greater distance between Jesus and the world, between Jesus Christ and the world. He came with, Matthew began with these miraculous manifestations. This was no ordinary thing. They're trying to show the people that it's literally so, and nobody wants to believe it. And uh, he keeps trying to put it over to the apostles. It finally begins to dawn on them what he is really after. That they're really talking about the eternities. This is something else. And that that is real, and this world isn't. So, Peter asked him, you know, he say, who do you say I am? And he says, thou art uh, the Son of God, of course. And uh, then he says, he's going to call him Peter. 
And of course, he doesn't call him Peter. In John, he calls him Kepha, which is his Arama Aramaic name. It's Kepha there. He's here, of course, it's translated into Peter Petrus. But the funny thing is, Petrus has nothing to do with Petra. He says, I call you Petrus, and on this Petra, because the one is a rock and the other is a uh, is a gem, a jewel. And Kepha, well, we'll see it. See what the uh, form is here. In John, it says he's Kephas. And you remember in in, uh, Darla, in Revelations, in Revelations 2 and 17, it tells us that to everyone will be given a white stone, and he shall partake of the hidden manna. Well, now he calls, he calls, uh, and that's the word st stone that's used here. And he calls Peter the stone here. It's a stone of divination. It's an interesting development we've been having recently here. And in this 16th chapter of Matthew, he's just been talking to them about the hidden manna. Remember, he just, the, what he said just before they went up to uh, Caesar Philippi here, he said, don't you remember, don't you have any faith? Don't you remember the loaves and the fishes and the feeding of the multitude? There was a miraculous feasting of the manna that had been given. And the manna goes along with the, with the for some reason in the Revelations, it goes along. Every man gets a white stone that will admit you to the feast of the, the hidden manna. In fact, I had an article in classical journal years ago on that very subject. Well, um, and if you write what, read what Kepha is, if you go to Dalman's big dictionary, Aramaic dictionary, what he says Kepha is, the word he used for stone, was Edelstein. It's a gem, a jewel. And two Catholic writers today really shifted ground. They said, Peter the rock, they say, Peter is the rock of divination. It's the stone of discernment. One by the name of Ford and another by the name of Flusser have both written articles showing that even for Catholics, when he talks to Peter, he says, Peter, I'm talking about the rock of discernment. The stone of discernment, they say, which is probably the Urim and Thummim. All it means is revelation. And this is the rock on which he builds the church. The Urim and Thummim, the stone of discernment, the, the stone in the, in the, uh, in the high priest's in the high priest garment and the seer stone they were all very familiar objects and uh, mysterious you might say but he's talking about revelation so he says flesh and blood and this is why i support with it flesh and blood have not revealed this to you but my father in heaven and this is the rock i built my church on the revelation of course because nothing is said here about uh, well like the precious jewel and the seer stone and the earth and the stone of revelation it's called all those things and of course, the Catholics even admit Christ did not build his church upon a man. Peter died, he left. This is not until the 5th century they settled this. Peter, he is head of the church by virtue of being bishop of Rome. The head of the church is not a bishop, though. A bishop is only a city officer. He is bishop of one city. Ah, but they say Rome was the capital of the world. That was its political position. That had nothing to do with, with any position established by the Lord. The Lord never set said a particular city as the as a, well of course Jerusalem was the holy city that was a pilgrimage it's a very interesting thing you won't find a single father of the church who encourages pilgrimage they were all very much against pilgrimage against going uh, to Jerusalem because it would cast uh, a doubt on the holiness of Rome I mean Jerusalem was a sacred city the holy city after all not Rome they didn't want people to go to Jerusalem well anyway the uh, and then of course Peter left the scene and uh, nothing whatever is said about his successors they say the whole point of this is that Peter had successors, and really there's nothing said about successors, about establishing an office, having to do with, with any particular city, let alone Rome, because this time we don't know because it's only Babylon. And so the, uh, 
what he's talking about here is, is revelation. He built his church upon revelation. Now, from this time, see, always should we stick with the text and then start spend too much time on each verse or should we move along faster? We better move along faster. From this time he began to tell them how complete the break was. He tells them he'd be given a very bad time, the 21st verse. He'd been given a very bad time. Apo, not your poet, but apo. Through the influence of the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders, the high priests, the sophorim, the, uh, the interpreters of the scriptures, the one who should be the first to recognize him. Now, isn't this an interesting thing? These people were all the ones that spent, spent their whole time with the scripture, studying the law and the prophets, and looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They're the very ones that should recognize him first. But why did they dig in their heels? Why were they the ones that up there, the ones that always get in the trouble right up to the end? They recognize him, and they recognize him as the son of David and the Haman. But that's the time when the scribes, the Pharisees, and the high priests, and the judges really decide to get rid of him altogether. They fight every inch of the way. That's where the opposition comes from. It's from the ministry. I see the very people that should recognize him. It's, you notice that throughout Matthew, it's very, very striking. They're the ones that make the trouble every time when the people want it, when he's healing, no matter what he's doing, they'll run him down, challenge him, and he handles them every time. Okay? He silences them every time, but they always come back for more. And this is very clear, well, in the next chapter of Matthew, too. But anyway, um, he tells them that these people would finally encompass his death. He'd go to Jerusalem and suffer at their hands, he names who they are, and suffer death. And then Peter really objects. He says, this is going too far. This is ridiculous. He confronts it. You must be joking, he says. The word he uses is helios, which means joking. And then you see what great distance, in the next verse, what great distance still there remains between the disciples and the realization of the issue here. Because the Lord uses the strongest possible language to bring this out. When he says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Well, why would he say that? Well, it was a, for one thing, it was a known expression. But here, Satan, I think, is in, well, it is in its, his original sense. It means the one who lies in wait, the adversary, but it means the trick. Shatana means to lie in ambush, to try to trip somebody up. And the very next word after Satan proves that, he says, you're trying to be a stumbling block to me. You're trying to trick me into saying what you want to hear. But I'm afraid we can't settle for that, he says. So he uses this language. Adversary, one in ambush who tries to trip one up or intrigue. And the next word following Satan is, you are my scandal. And a scandal, of course, is a stumbling block. Something in your way, something put there. It could be a trap or a rope across the road. Anything to trip you up is a scandal. You're trying to trip me up to make me say what you want to hear. But it won't do. Again, the gulf in the distance. And he adds to that, you're not thinking about the things of God at all. You're thinking the way men think, the way ordinary men think. And that won't do. So very clear he makes these things in that 23rd verse. Those of you reading along here know it's slowest now. And we emphasize speed in this class. <laughs> oh, may I say to you, that can never be, he says. But he turned on Peter and struck him. Peter and says, get thee behind me, sir. You're a, you're a scandal to me. Scandal in Aeum. But he oofed because you're not thinking as God would think at all, a la tatum anthropo, but the way ordinary people think in that home too. Uh, then Jesus said to his disciples, if you want to follow me, he just keeps, he's relentless in this. 
He's not going to spare them at all. And that's, he brings this so if anybody wants to follow me, he says, go my way. He has got to give up his own thing and take up his cross. That was the common means of public execution. Execution was the cross. There were crosses everywhere in the empire. What a ghastly situation. And follow me. Is this a cruel choice? That's it. What could you, I mean, so uncompromising, very cruel. No, it is not a cruel choice. The next verse he says, no, I'm giving you the best possible news here. Anyone who really wants to save his life will have to lose it. He who thinks he can save his life is going to lose it. Right, but at this way, he says, who wants to choose with delight, who wants to choose to save his life can do so by conforming to the demands of the world and thereby limiting his short existence to this miserable span. And everybody knew it this time. Well, everybody knew it. The classic tags from the Greek tragedy, O Guinness Anthropogosos, O Sas Isatome Denamorithmo, O human race, how I consider you equal to exactly nothing. Life is short and dirty. Again and again, the phrase on everybody's lips, it is better for man never to have been born. It's brief, a short and dirty life here and so forth. It was a bad time in the empire, and uh, it was a time of cultural collapse, too. But you want to extend, you want to, to gain that, he says, and then he makes his famous statement. If you gain the whole world, what good is it going to do you if you lose your life? And he doesn't use the word for life, which is bios or zoe. He used the word psuche, your eternal life, your eternal nature. That is a part of you that can't die. And the word isn't lose it, but the word is damazo, damage. That's our word damage is from it. If you do serious injury to your chances in the eternities, because you've got to live that anyway, that's not worth gaining this whole world as far as that goes. But here you just want to gain a little of it, hang on for a little while, and uh, and lose that. So it makes it very clear what the situation is here. But he who trusts me, meaning taking me seriously, lets his life go for my sake, is what he says here. And it can move. Because of what he has learned from me, he has a pleasant surprise in store. Again, this world is nothing. To own the whole world is not worth jeopardizing, wrecking, I say damaging, is the word he uses, your ticket, your the imperishable part of you. And as opposed to career or anything down here, forget it. Now he says, he's talking what the alternative is. And this is the alternative. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father. Another world in time. They just can't really believe that. This is the whole thing. It's their Right down to the crucifixion, they're not going to believe it, even until after they when remember when they come and report the the, the resurrection, the apostles won't believe it. And so well what's that got to do with the present farce that's coming coming in the tomb with his angels and so forth? And then he will give back to everyone and what is a very interesting word here, what is praxin and erga. They're both used here. It means work which has been assigned, work which has been agreed on. And this clearly reflects on the pre-existence. Our tasks here. See, every man who comes to this earth received his assignment in the pre-existent, and he says here, he will give back, pay back to everyone, but his activity deserves. How well he has performed the work assigned. He gives these two words for work that's been assigned. But how would you have assigned work when you come here if you just come out of nothing? And this is where you first start. But you come here with an assignment. He says you'll be judged according to how well you fulfilled it when you were here. You can't possibly escape. We're always running into the pre-existence here, but we always slip by it. We always overlook it because it's a doctrine which the doctors got rid of in the fourth century. But, uh, 
and uh, then, yes, it was the plan arranged from the foundation of the world, which our president, the Congress, was ignored. And they asked him, when will that be, if you're going to come like that? Uh, well, it won't be in the days of the disciples, we know that, because he says there are some of them now living. Now, there's a prophecy you hear a lot, we've heard it in, in this dispensation, people have been told they've heard it, had patriarchal blessings, told that they would still be here when the Lord comes and things like that. But how would that be arranged? Here he says there are some now living who will see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom without having to die. The word is hoda. <coughs> to stand here, but the word hoda is, it doesn't say now living here, is hoda, is in your present condition. Hoda means in your present condition. It can on rare occasions mean at the present time, here and now, but it doesn't mean that here. There are some of those who will not be, who will be in your present condition when the Son of Man comes, he says. Uh, well, you know, John was such, and the three Nephites were such, and so forth. But uh, would they taste of death after they saw the Lord rise in? Well, everybody asked that sometime. But, no, but this is the question that perplexed Moroni. He says he couldn't figure out what the condition of the three Nephites was until uh, it was revealed to him by an angel. They would have to go through the same, but it would be a, a transition in a a quick transition in a hurry. Now, there was, this happens to certain people, and the Lord says, this will happen to certain And John is still around there. Time is not the important thing. The, uh, we're all living in the same, we're all living in the same project, so to speak, whether it's here or there, anywhere later. Time is not the important thing. Well, anyway, that's the last verse, isn't it? We're puzzled as we room I was. And we get to the 17th chapter, which is a very interesting one, because Every single sentence in it widens the distance between the Lord and this world. And it's, uh, it's astonishing how it brings it out. Now notice the first verse. It, it limits attendance. Uh, the Lord, this, of course, is the, is the transfiguration. And uh, it starts out by limiting the attendance. He only takes three with him, just Peter, James, and John, called in Acts the pillars of the church. He takes them with him. So now it's a very limited audience, a very limited group he has. And when they come down, he tells them, don't tell this to anybody else until the resurrection. Then we can, then we can spread this thing wider. But right now it's very confined, <coughs> secret. And they're watching things very carefully. And they say every verse here emphasizes the distance. The different sort of thing the Lord represents and is and men simply can't take it. So... They go up to a high mountain, now the most inaccessible place possible, to the public. All by himself. That's as far as you can get in this world. Uh, and it says, all by himself, bringing with him, cut it in, to be alone. He went up to be alone, bringing with him Peter, James, and John. And uh, he says they followed him. Now, in the legends, of course, the, remember the legends of Christ and his miracles and so forth, there's a vast... Uh, how the church grew, how Christianity overcame, came the world and became the great victorious church and so forth. And always in those stories, the greatest manifestations are always reserved for the greatest crowd. And for the last seat in the theater is filled, the Lord will not perform, or Peter or Thomas or Barnabas will not perform a miracle until the last seat is filled and the crowd is all ready to see And everybody's stopping. And then they can put on a real show. This becomes standard. But you notice here, the greater the revelation, the greater the manifestation, the fewer people see it. And he was, second verse, metamorphosed in the present. The word used is metamorphosed. You don't read for it. This confirms everything he's been saying. He really is from another world. This confirms it. 
uh, he is another nature. When it uh, was not just a manner of speaking, is being glorified with the Father. You see, now as I said, reading in these journals today, you see, well, as Jesus is the Christ Spirit, He's Jesus who is in all of us. He's glorified with the Father in the same sense and so forth. That's not it at all here. Here, the way He's glorified, His countenance shone like the sun, and His garments appeared brilliantly white. Good enough. The three men appear here. Uh, they didn't good enough. <coughs> they worked on early, on the earliest Jewish uh, symbols. Talks about the there's a standard situation of the three men in white, and uh, always mention made of their brilliant white garments. As you know, uh, Joseph says, Joseph says about the garment of, of uh, Moroni, which sounds such brilliance. You can imagine anything to be whiter. And the uh, so it says his countenance has changed, but they recognized who it was, and his garment was brilliantly white. And behold, now you're going to get the three men, Moses and Elijah appear. Notice we have represented three dispensations and three levels of priesthood, Christ, Moses, and Elijah. And they appeared in conference with them, conferring with them, conversing with them. The three were discussing the dispensation of the fullness of time. And Peter, who was both appointed and impulsive, interrupts. Now the word answers, interrupts, implying that he entered into the discussion. Does that mean that when he says he interrupted? No, he wasn't in the discussion, but he interrupted. But he interrupted and blurted out, good old Peter, Lord, you'll never do this to me, and Lord, you've gone too far, and so forth. Lord, I will never deny you. Always impulsively making these statements. Lord, he says, this is the place for us. Kalon this is the This is the right place. This is the place where we should be. He says, right here. If you are willing, he says, I will make, I will make here uh, three courts, three skinny. These are the three courts, the three shrines, the three courts of the temple. I will build a temple here so we can come here often. Uh, they represent the three degrees. He says, to thee, to Moses, and to Elijah. He will build the three courts. Remember, the three courts, the outer court, the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies. He's going to do the same thing here. He's going to build a temple on the mountain. And uh, this is the right place for us to be, he says. Uh, it sounds very mild to say it's good for us to be here. No, the emphasis is not on the verb. It says, this is the right place for us to be. So let's build a temple there. Will you give me permission to build a temple? He says, I'll build it if you give me permission. Uh, no, he says quite specifically, if you give me permission, I, I will build it. And uh, now you notice in the next verse, pictures, this is the farthest possible removed from this world. It's an overpowering cultural shock. It's impossible for men to experience it, yet it's real. Because a cloud came, a brilliant cloud, it says. Now, a cloud and overshadowed them. Well, for a brilliant cloud to overshadow you, there has to be something more brilliant behind it. You don't realize the sunspots, but the cold black, when you look at an image of the sun, project an image of the sun, are really quite brilliant, and they would shine very brightly in the dark, but by the contrast. But it says a cloud came, a brilliant cloud came, and overshadowed them, and from behind the, the voice, the, uh, the cloud, they heard a voice. Because they would have been consumed otherwise. You know, the book of Moses and so forth. Because as it was, it says they were utterly paralyzed and they fell down and passed out completely. But first he says, this is my beloved son. The father testifies to the son. So here there are two separate persons. The father is talking from behind the cloud. The son is there in their presence. They see him. He is glorified. He is transfigured. And uh, as they say, metamorphosed in front of us. And uh, Moses and Elijah are there. And they all three, six verse says, all three fall down and pass out, completely overcome. Well, from fear, it says, completely overwhelmed. Talk about a cultural shock. This was it. And the next thing they knew, 
The next thing they were aware of, Jesus was shaking them and saying, Wake up, it's all over now. There's nothing to be afraid of. They said, First, wake up, there's nothing to be afraid of. And they looked around and saw nobody but Jesus said. Mind you, it was Jonah Smith coming to after the vision. He says, I found myself lying on my back looking up into heaven. Been in that position all the time, possibly. But this was a very, now this is the thing that, uh, that so impresses Edward Mather. He says the whole, the whole truth of the gospel, the whole test of the New Testament is whether this really happened or not. He says this is one time when we cannot possibly interpret it in a spiritual or abstract or allegorical manner. This, as it's put here, really must have happened. And uh, this is so much like Jonah Smith's experience. He says we have a real problem here. And then they come down the mountain. The world was to know nothing about it until after the resurrection. It was not to be publicized at all. It was for Peter, James, and John. And the, re the resurrection itself, when another such physical transformation would take place. An extremely important physical transformation. He was really transfigured here and say metamorphosis, but the resurrection is going to happen again. He's going to be resurrected and appear resurrected, and the people won't believe it. And... It was still too much for the disciples to say nothing of the world to take with or to save any other disciples or anything else. But oh, as they're coming down the mountain, they say, but what about Elijah, the forerunner? Remember, always Elijah was to be the forerunner. Elijah must come and first announce the, the, uh, the Lord, the Messiah. And the answer is Elijah comes first and he will restore everything. And so the Lord says in the 12th verse, Elijah did come and they didn't recognize him either. In writes me, they didn't recognize Elijah either. They treated him like a nobody. They did do him, they pushed him around, they didn't anything they wanted to. They treated him like a thing there. Uh, and it's going to be the same thing with the Son of Man. This is not going to solve, this dispensation is not going to win over at all. We, we talk a lot about the great apostasy and all. There was, it was the great rejection. They never, they never got in enough to apostatize very much. There was no great apostasy. Uh, that was imperceptible as far as that goes. But uh, they never really accepted him. He says here, they wouldn't accept John. They treated him as nothing. And it would be the same thing with the Son of Man. Then the disciples realized that he was speaking of John the Baptist. They hadn't known before. These things are gradually coming to light. And now, the next verse, they go down. They're met by a great multitude. And we get the completest possible contrast here. We've been in the presence of the Father and the Son here. And he goes down. And they're met by a crowd of mob. And out of this mob comes a person who is possessed by a devil. And it's such a, it's the worst possession of all because it is the devil speaking to him. Of course, he has, he has had the confrontation with Satan for, uh, Brother Fletcher. A couple of things to add. Uh, in Mark 9, the translation adds that uh, uh, Mark 9 was more, there appeared under him Elias with Moses, and then it's more in other words, John the Baptist and Moses. So it's, it's, uh, it's possible that both John the oh, Baptist yes. well, as well as Elias. That's a passage, there. yes. And another thing was in uh, section 63 where it says, uh, uh, He that endureth in faith and doeth my will, the same shall overcome and shall receive an inheritance upon the earth. When the day of transfiguration shall come, when the earth shall be transfigured, even according to the pattern which was shown unto my apostles upon the mountain, in which account the fullness ye have not yet received. So See, we we're dealing with a totally different world, a totally different thing, people wouldn't accept it. But this John the Baptist, remember the people took him to be Elijah, read the Beavis. He was the, remember, he was the wild man. <clears throat> mentioned him before, and uh, living on wild locusts and honey, and letting his hair grow and so forth, not touching wine or anything like that, and living in the desert, and it, living in the wilderness, and they called him the, uh, it's a very interesting thing Josephus tells us, uh, when they asked him his name, he says, I am Enoch, I am Enosh, 
which was the same as Enoch and Elijah. See, Enoch and Elijah were the two who had come together to announce the Messiah at the end of the world. It was always good. We still accept it. Uh, the two shall, shall come together, Elijah and uh, and um, and Enoch. Okay. But he said, I'm Enoch, which simply means the man. I am the man. I'm Enoch the man. But he was the wild man. And of course, in the book of Enoch, they say, uh, a strange thing in the land, a wild man has come among us. This figure. But then when they come down, the Lord says to them, this was Elijah, if you can understand it in this sense. If you can understand it, he adds that. And that's very important. This was. Because then we know that he came in the spirit and calling of Elijah. This was it. Well, if you're in the spirit and you're calling well, Elijah was succeeded by Elisha, as you know. Because it is the spirit and the calling. And God, yes, he received his robe and he received his aspect, as far as that goes. When the, when the robe of Joseph Smith fell upon Brigham Young, the, the, again, you had the same sort of thing happen. We're dealing with types here. A person can, a comparison could be a substitute, but it's more than being a substitute. We can hold that same office in calling. Yes, I say, that's why we should stick more to the text, I say, instead of just these notes. And I'm not hurrying along, and I see the time is up now. But let's see now. The uh, He goes, yes, but the contrast is this, you see. He comes into contact with the other side, a raging, maniacal character whom the disciples couldn't cure. The only time this happened, you see. This is from the very best to the very worst people have. We we're now see the, uh, the what, what the Kabbalah call, they see the Akra, they see the Akra, meaning the dark side, is the things being used today. Remember I noticed now, the other side of things. They couldn't reach him. And I think this contrast here is intentional, from the highest glory to the realm of the desert, in quick transition here. They're, they're confronted, they're put side by side. And he says to them, when they couldn't do it, whom does he rebuke? He doesn't rebuke the devils, he rebukes the disciples. He says, you don't understand this. How long have I got to be with you and put up with this sort of thing? Again, the distance between him. Uh, the Lord is out of place when he says, how long must I put up with you? There's no thought of compromise, of adapting to their level. For it's not beyond their capacity or he would lose patience with them. He knows they could do it and they do later on. But he, uh, here, it, it's, they're the ones that are weak. It's their lack of faith. And the disciples then ask him privately, which you give publicly, why couldn't we cast it out? And throughout, they always use a, a neuter here. Not him, but it. Why couldn't we cast it out? And the answer is this in the 19th verse, simply because of your lack of faith. There it is again. And then he says, another the famous mustard seed passage, and this is an important one here. Uh, faith is a grain of mustard seed. I was reading a passage yesterday, right from the beginning of Thotlaby, on the creation. It's a, it's a very old Jewish tradition. Uh, which uh, survived uh, uh, Jewish communities in, in the Persian Empire. And it has to do with the grain of mustard seed, too. And it's a very interesting explanation, and it is this. Mustard seed is the smallest of things at all, but it is real, you see. Your faith as a grain of mustard seed, it doesn't say as big as a grain of mustard seed, it can be as tiny as it wants, as long as it is real, as long as there is solid substance there, that's the idea, not how big it is or how small it is. If you really have the faith, then you've entered into another type of being. Then you've entered into, see, a, another frame, framework, uh, you might say another frame of reference, another concept of matter, material, as far as that goes. The thing is that it's real. See, I put it here. How big is faith? It is to represent the least reality. Faith is a force known only by its effects on its possessor and the world, who we are not yet ready to accept it, and that other realm as real, the mustard seed. Any faith at all is what you need. If you had any faith at all in that other thing, then you could move mountains. Well, E equals MC squared. 
how much matter does it take to move about? Not very much, much smaller than the mustard seed would do it as far as that goes. But this is the idea that we're talking about another phase of existence and it could be just as real to you as could be represented by one little mustard seed, then you'd be able to work with it and do anything you want with it. Uh, another thing, this is a very interesting thing again, that the Egyptian temple is like a powerhouse in which you have a, in which you have a, uh, a switchboard and a, and a control board, controls. And it just takes a little, a little push of a button. It takes the least application of effort to produce enormous results, you see, if you have the right hookup, this is the power of the priesthood and so forth. But it has to be real. You have to make the contact here. And if you can do it, then there's no proportion at all between the the energy you need to exert, to exert and the results. You can move mountains by just pressing the right button, as far as that goes, this analogy. But you understand this and you accept this particular phase of things. This is what he's talking about here. And the next verse is omitted, I see we're through now. The next verse is omitted from Nestle entirely. It's another answer to the question. This kind comes not. This kind comes not out except with faith and prayer. Uh, here there are degrees of faith, ways to overcome our natural resistance to faith. Prayer and fasting will place distance between you and this world. That's why that's why we do it. Uh, we don't not that we necessarily approach the other world. We, we gravitate there naturally. But we re must remove that obstacle first. That obstacle is very real. Remember the things of this world and the cares of this world that keep the seed from springing up, that keep it from... The thing, we must remove that obstacle. How do we do it? Well, he says, you have to work on that one, and you have to do fasting and prayer. Now, this is the kind they couldn't solve. Well, this will allow you to remove that obstacle, which is the concerns of this world. I mean, what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, what we're going to drink, and so forth, uh, that's it. So, this is the way we work on it. Through prayer and fasting. And you mentioned prayer first, Mr. Bennett. By prayer and fasting, we put it the other way around, because it sounds better. The, uh, so, fasting and prayer place distance between you and the mesmerizing grasp of this worldly concern, the imperatives of the flesh. You have to break through them, and that's what fasting and prayer is for. So, uh, I hope you all fasted today. Mm. <laughs> well, the next verse, excuse me, well, one more verse here, we're going really through with the chapter. They're on their way back to Galilee again, and he tells them, this thing is never going to be settled. Not now, you don't expect it. The Son of Man is going to be handed over into men's power, and they will put him to death. And on the third day he shall arise. It says that they were, next verse says they were terribly upset at this news. The first part of the prophecy, they accepted that he'd go to Jerusalem, be handed over and put to death, but they wouldn't believe that he would rise again. They wouldn't believe it yet. It says they were terribly upset. They're absolutely sick. They, would, they didn't believe a word of it as far as his rising again. He still hasn't got through to them. Thing. All the way through Matthew, you find that. The gap between us and it still exists between us and the and the gospel, as far as I know. But it puts Matthew, well, all the gospels on a different level, doesn't it? Well, who can get to know you well? Because it's Matthew, I mean, when you begin to. All through it, the whole thing is Matthew. The Lord never gets through to you. You can uh, say, close us here. This concludes the program on this side of the cassette. Please fast forward the cassette before listening to the other side.
persons who put on quite a show, and the Sadducees were willing to demythologize and say, well, this is all just a myth, more or less. There's no real resurrection. We're not talking about the physical, all just spiritual. Nobody would take the message any more than they do today. Always, you notice we've seen this, this is separation, this division uh, between the Lord and the world. They won't accept him. Every time they start just to accept him, remember, the and the Pharisees, the Sophorim, always show up and start to spoil the game. Well, here the, uh, comes another text. What about taxes? The rulers of this world come to... Se- now, here's the separation. There's a necessary separation between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world, because Satan is the prince of this world and so forth. And so here's another stickler. How do we bridge this gap, or is this gap to be bridged between this world and the paying of taxes? They came to ask him, should we pay tax? And uh, at Capernaum, the tax collector comes, and the problem is, well, you might distance yourself with the world, spiritually and so forth, but how are you going to distance yourself from him? How are you going to settle that particular matter? And the uh, Jesus says, the rulers of this world don't accept, don't collect taxes from their own people, the royal family doesn't, the prefect of the of uh, Palestine doesn't. He just accepts taxes from outsiders. A tax is paid by an outsider, and this is the whole purpose of tax. And this is why the Lord says you must pay it, because we're, we're on his realm. The, uh, I wrote a long piece on taxes some years ago in a, in a journal with the author. This is the conclusion to it. The main theme is this. What is a tax? Well, the word tax comes from, from tag. You, you play a game of tag? If I tag you, you have to pay the tax. The tag was a, a tap on the shield with another person who would come into your land, and it challenges, you challenge him to fight. We get this beautifully set forth in Poisson and some other works. You challenge him to fight. We're not going to be on this for long. And if he's willing to fight for the land, then it's his. Then you pay tax to him. But a tax is something you pay for your privilege. Taxing and toll, the same as the word shows, something you pay for the privilege of staying in another person's land as an alien without being disturbed and without being committed to follow him or you, you free yourself by paying the tax. It goes this way. The only sure thing about the root meaning of the word in speak is that it signifies to touch, to tag, suggesting a possible connection between being taxed and being tagged. Once, once the war shield has been touched, one must choose between settling with the talenter to meet him in arms by, or by giving him a token of submission for the luxury of remaining in possession without a fight. You're going to get out of that. So the conclusion is, living in an atmosphere of emergency and uncertainty, the state, every state, has always been obliged to tax to preserve its identity. If you refuse to pay a tax, if you refuse, it's only a token, you see. Only remember what the tax on tea was at the Boston Tea Party. It wasn't much. It was a very trifle. As a matter of fact, uh, John Hancock was selling tea at a much higher price than the British were selling it right there in Boston. But it was a token. It was a token of submission, and that's what they didn't want to do. But the amount of the tax that bothered them at all. And it's the same thing here. Taxes are viewed by those who are asked to pay them most as a personal insult and affront to the sacredness of property. That's exactly what they are and what they were originally meant to be. An ancient tax notice, an imperious tap on the seal, was nothing less than an invitation to a sojourner in a land to justify his presence there, either by satisfying the claims of the owner to recognition or by meeting him in open combat for possession. We may deplore taxes, but we may not resent them. 
As long as we're in a stranger's land, we pay him a tax. And uh, we're strangers and pilgrims in the world, as Paul tells us. And Satan is the prince of this world, and so we pay him a tax. And the Lord says about Caesar the same thing. Whose image is on the coin? Well, it's Caesar's. All right, it's his. Pay it to him. And don't make trouble. Don't go to, don't go to uh, law about it. And so the uh, attacks are told, and it's what a stranger what a stranger pays to live or pass through the lands of another. The Lord tells Peter to pay the tax. Incidentally, this verse has been deleted from most texts, but it's in all the manuscripts, but the editors don't like it. But it's there, it says, the Lord tells Peter to pay the tax as an alotrius, as an alien in the land. We're aliens in Peter's land, in, uh, in Caesar's land. He's conquered it, he rules it, now it's his. We do not, we do not uh, recognize subjection to him, and we pay the tax to be free from that. That's what you pay scutage for, for example. In the Middle Ages, nobody wanted to serve the other, nobody wanted to, even the nobility wouldn't, didn't want to pay scutage. So they pay scutage so they wouldn't have to do it. You pay a coin, and then you don't have don't have this. Well, this gets down to a very important thing. We don't have time for this, so better end here. Where... This concludes the recording on this cassette. You may continue the program by listening to the next tape in this series.